please join me in prayer. Father, we, we are so grateful for you. We are so grateful for Jesus and that even though we have no hope of making our hands clean on our own, that, that he can. We are so grateful that through Jesus we can be called children of God. That our status, that our eternity, that our worth can all change. And do change. We are so grateful that you would love us. And that even though we, we did and thought all the things we did yesterday, have this morning, over the past week, that all make us completely unworthy of you. That by your grace we can come here, that we can still sing to you, that we can have our sins forgiven. We thank you for that love. For that love that's available. God, you are so good. Be with us now. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief and the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light, the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope and the winter of despair. And no, I'm not so far out of material that I've resulted to Dickens. Um, that's obviously from the tale of two cities. And uh, this morning's passage could easily be called the tale of two men, and, and perhaps if it were, we could say he was the best of guys, he was the worst of guys, he was a deep hard worker, and he was a lazy bum. It's a story of unlikely faith and a story of blind, misplaced hope. It was private rejoicing and a public spectacle. Today we'll be reading and studying of the odd couple of sorts. Uh, two guys that couldn't be much more indifferent than they are, and yet John has put them right next to each other. And so for the rest of eternity, these two guys are neighbors on a page. You see... The gospel writers, a lot of times we'll think of the gospel writers as just telling the story as it happened, as it literally unfolded from beginning to end, and it's chronological, but, but you know, there's some differences, so maybe they just remembered the order of the events differently, but the, the events themselves are true. But that's not entirely how it goes. You, with Luke, I, I think Luke is pretty chronological based on the purpose for why he's writing. But a lot of times the gospel writers, what they'll do is they'll, they'll look at Jesus' life 
And they want to teach us about Jesus. And so, so how they do it is they say, well, here's everything Jesus said about the kingdom of God. Here's a bunch of parables Jesus told. Here's a bunch of times Jesus healed people. And they string together stories of Jesus that are all true in order to build an argument for who Jesus is. All right? And, the, and in doing so, they have a chronology of Jesus' character more than a chronology of the events as they happened from January to February and so forth. And John is doing that in this section. He's building a chronology of, of Jesus' character. And so we have this tale of two men. And let's look at the first guy. The first guy is a hard-working father. Let's look at, at John 4, 46-54. Let's read this. So he, being Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water into wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down to, his, to heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour that he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. So Jesus, here he is, he's just been with the Samaritans. He spent some days there, and now he's going back to Cana. This is where we have the, the infamous story of, of him at the wedding, and he makes some amazing wine. Because they had run out, and Mary said, make more wine. So he made the water into wine, and the, the host said, now usually, said to the bridegroom, usually the best wine is served first, and then the cheap, wine, cheap stuff comes out when people don't know the difference. But you've saved the best for last. And that was Jesus' first miracle. And here's the second one. And so Jesus is coming, and it's safe to say, obviously, word has spread. This guy made water into wine, and the people are coming around. And I imagine there were a great number of people who were coming around, and they were just watching Jesus. Well, we want to see what happens next. We want to see a miracle. And they didn't want to behold the Lamb of God. They wanted to watch the next trick. They were treating Jesus as some sort of pen and teller show. 
What's he going to do that's unbelievable? I want to be able to say, I was there. And up my social status. I want to have a good story. And not, but not only had that news spread around that town, it had spread around the region. It had spread to another town, to Capernaum. It, and it's amazing that it's gone this far. It's gone, that's about a 25-mile walk. So you think now, like 25 miles, you could still be in the Des Moines metro area and, and go that far. Maybe. I'm not great with geography. But it's not too far. It's not even up to Ames. And with traveling and with technology, the way word spreads, it could get there pretty quick. Can you imagine you take away all electricity, all technology, all motor vehicles. The fastest way is, is maybe a horse or a couple horses pulling a, a buggy of some kind. And word travels. You know, I lived in Orange City. I can't remember one time a bit of gossip or a story from Cleghorn, Iowa made it to Orange City. <laughs> oh, did you hear what happened in Cleghorn? Like, no. Nobody hears what happens in Cleghorn. <laughs> Raise your hand if you didn't even know there was a town called Cleghorn in Iowa until right now. <laughs> there we go. It's the best name for a town. If you're going to have a podunk town, name it Cleghorn. It's just... <laughs> Just fantastic. It didn't only travel that distance, but it traveled to another culture. See, a lot of people think this official was a Gentile official. Some people think he may have been someone who was associated with Herod. So this has crossed towns, it's crossed cultures to the point where this guy, his son is sick, and the only thing that makes sense is to travel 25 miles, maybe on a horse, maybe in a buggy, maybe on foot. Travels 25 miles. No matter how you're going with any three of those, that's a long trip. This is a day's travel. If he was walking it, it would be about an eight-hour walk. And so we know from later in the passage, he knows Jesus healed his son around the seventh hour. That would have been 1 p.m. They measure by the hours of sunlight. So 6 a.m. is, is 0, 0,00, right? Noon is 6, 1 is 7. So he may have traveled the day before, spent all day looking for Jesus, finally got to him around lunchtime. He may have left in the middle of the night to get there and travel and get there and, and find Jesus. He was desperate. Word had gotten there, and he, this, the only thing is, I got to go find this Jesus. I hear he's back in town. I got to go find the guy that turned water into wine. He heard about a culinary miracle and did a full day's journey to find Jesus. Here's something I find amazing. We don't have to walk, right? We don't have to walk to get to Jesus. You don't have to walk 25 miles to get to the praying pole. That would be horribly inconvenient. And yet, how many times when we face a crisis of any kind, does prayer find its way down the list of ways? We, crying out to God sometimes falls pretty far down our list. 
a crisis comes. Oh, this guy knows something about it. I'll call him. I'll post it on Facebook, get a bunch of sad emojis, feel better about myself. How many times when a crisis comes do we, are we quick to go to prayer and say, I have, this guy, this guy walked 25 miles to have access to Jesus. I have access to Jesus immediately through praying. So whether the crisis is my own sin, whether the crisis is my property, whether the crisis is someone else's problem, whether the crisis is an illness, I can cry out to God immediately. And then we look at the nature of his request. His request is really quite bold. Jesus, come to my house and heal my son. And don't worry, it's, it's, it's only 16 hours of walking round trip. You'll be back by tomorrow if you don't stop. Listen, Jesus, why don't you just set down everything you were going to do? I'm sure you had people to teach. I'm sure you had people to see and talk to. You're, you may be following up with someone. Jesus, I'm sure you had an agenda. But if you could put that on hold, walk eight hours with me, heal my son, and walk eight hours back, that would really be great. It would really be great if you could do that. I don't know what your thoughts are on prayer. I don't know what all your individual beliefs are on the issue of prayer. But I, I do know that we as mid Midwesterners, we value politeness. And we don't want to do anything to put anyone out. Oh, I wouldn't want to inconvenience you. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to give you any trouble. Don't worry about me. I got this on my own. And that's fine, like if you're out of eggs and you're baking. That's not okay with prayer. You know what? I, I'm sure God has bigger problems than what I'm facing right now. So I'm not going to pray about it. He's God. He can handle it. He said, let there be light, and it happened. He can handle your prayer. But secondly, like, this is what God wants. Sometimes we just need to be reminded, God is crazy about you. He loves you so much. He is just absolutely nuts in love with you. And we need to be reminded of this. Because sometimes we get, we, 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 I'm all, I'm a holiness of God guy. When we talk about the attributes of God, holiness of God, first and foremost. Like, I'm, I'm all about the holiness of God. Sometimes we can do that to the fault where we forget about his love. And we forget that God is madly in love with you. He's madly in love with your neighbors, even if they don't know him yet. He wants them to know him. He's so much in love with you. He spent his son's blood to make a relationship possible. It's better than roses. It's better than dinner. Like he sent Jesus out of love for you while you were still a sinner. He loves you so much. So ask him bold things. We have the access of a child to God. Ask him bold things. So he comes. Jesus, can you come down? Heal my son. And Jesus has this really weird reply. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, 
you will not believe. I think Jesus said this for the benefit of the crowd. There's a lot of people around him. This guy comes up, can you come heal my son? And I'm sure part of Jesus' thought is, if I do this, one, there's going to be a whole lot of people following and walking that whole 25 miles there and back. So we're not going to do that. But secondly, there's a whole lot of people. Words going around, oh, he turned water into wine. What's he going to do this time? Turn bread into sushi? Like, that'd be great. They didn't do sushi. Um, clarification. Um, there's a real difference in, in how people pray for miracles. There are some people who pray for miracles out of spiritual voyeurism. They want to see something amazing happen so they can say, I was there when this happened. I saw something awesome. They want to be able to brag about seeing a miracle. And they treat miracles as tourists treat the Grand Canyon. And there are other people who, like this hardworking father, cry out to God in desperation because he's the only one who can really do something about this. And so what I think what Jesus was saying is he, there, was a, there was a little bit of a rebuke to the, the spiritual tourists, the, the miracle seekers, the ambulance chasers, if you will, of their time. There was a rebuke to them. You, you've heard I made water into wine, and now you're saying, oh, and Jesus would get this a lot, especially from Pharisees. Unless you, show us a sign so we can believe. Perform, Jesus. He's saying, how many, how many things do I have to do? I did water into wine. This guy, 25 miles away, heard I did water into wine, and now he's come because he knows I can heal his son. But it's also an, an admission of, I, I was sitting down with a guy who talked about the difficulty of someone knowing God. Without God revealing himself to us, our senses can't do it. God has to reveal himself. Our, our senses, our five senses aren't enough to get us to God. We can't walk around and go, <laughs> yeah. found the Holy Spirit. It's right over there. We can't sniff him out with our nose. He has to reveal himself. So Jesus is saying, there's, there's a part of it saying, unless I do this, you can't know. So Jesus heals his son, and we know the father and his whole household believe at the end. So then the father asks again, because he doesn't know what to do. Unless you, unless you see the signs and wonders, you won't believe. The father goes, sir, just come down, come down before my child dies. It's gone from a question. It's no longer can you. It's a, there, there's almost a command here. Jesus, you got to get over here. Jesus just says, go, your son will live. And the father, completely content with that. You know, can I get that in writing um, in case I need a refund? Like, there's nothing like that. It's just, okay. He believes Jesus and walks back. 
He doesn't ask for assurance. He just takes Jesus at his word. The Father sets an example for us. He knows the power of Jesus better than many of the people who are following him at this time. He knows that distance is not an issue for Jesus. The problem, you know, he wanted Jesus to come, but the moment Jesus says that, he goes, you know what? This guy, he's not bound by geography. Here's what he did. He believed in the omnipresence of God. If God is everywhere, is distance the issue? It's not that God is only in Nebraska. He's everywhere. And he's, this is his earth. This is his world. This is his universe. He's everywhere. If you had a loved one on the International Space Station, you could pray for them just as effectively as you could pray for your next door neighbor. It's what makes it possible for us to pray for a pastor in Turkey who's in prison who tomorrow has a hearing to see if he can go home, to see if a judge will say, yes, those are false charges, you can go home. You can go be with your family back in Oregon. We can pray for Pastor Andrew because distance isn't the issue. We can pray for people who are lost in the heart of the 1040 window because distance isn't keeping them from God. Darkness is. And we can pray that the light of the world will reveal himself to them. This, this hardworking father sets for us a great example. Which brings us to the other tale in this tale of two men. And that's of a hopeless man. So let's read, start reading into chapter 5 here. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who had been there for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there, he, he knew and knew uh, that he had already been there for a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? They don't care at all that he had been healed. Now the man who had been healed did not know that it was Jesus, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. After Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away, told the Jews that, Jesus, uh, that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing things on the Sabbath. This is a fun story. 
We don't have the details of the feast, but I, I think it's mentioned, one, for the reason Jesus was going to Jerusalem, and two, to tell us there's a big crowd there. It's not just the normal crowd at the temple in Jerusalem. This is the holiday crowd. It's tourist season. Jesus went in, he sees this, he sees this guy there. There's a whole multitude of people. He sees this guy, knowing this guy had been there a long time. Now, I don't know if you guys were following along and paying attention. Some of you might have verse 4 right in there. Some of you, it might go verse 3 and verse 5. And you might, if your Bible is like mine, have a little note that says verse 4 is, is down here way at the bottom of the page in even smaller font. And it says some manuscripts in, insert verse 4 here, that waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. What this is, is there, within Scripture, especially within the Gospels, we have these moments where there's a verse, there's a sentence or two, sometimes even a longer section like the end of Mark, where the earliest manuscripts people have found don't have these. And so for the sake of textual integrity, they put in these notes that say, this part was not in the earliest manuscripts we found. It's possible that it was lost from those. It's possible it was added in later. But it was in really early manuscripts. We feel it's somewhat reliable. We feel it's very reliable. But it wasn't in the earliest. For me, this speaks to the integrity of the scholarly reconstruction of Scripture. Through archaeology, through research, through translating, this speaks to the integrity and, the, dis and the, the discipline and the diligence of the process. It wasn't just slapping together a bunch of things to have a best-selling book. It wasn't slapping together a bunch of things to get people to believe certain things. So what do we do with verse 4? Well, what does this mean? Well, if we take verse 4 as it is, it appears that God, every now and then, would come and visit these people and heal someone. And so, people would gather, hoping that the water would be stirred, that they could be the first one in. And so, Jesus comes up to this guy. This guy has been paralyzed longer than I've been alive, and Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? On the surface, this feels like the laziest dialogue ever written. If you were watching this on TV, you would just be screaming, of course he wants to be healed. What kind of question is that, Jesus? But Jesus sees his heart. And Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And if you were skimming, you would assume he would say, well, yes, Jesus, I want to be healed. Then Jesus healed him. He rejoiced, gave praise to God, and went on his way. That's how we would write this. Here's what happened. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? And the guy never gives Jesus a straight answer. This is a yes or no question. He goes, well, every time the water's stirred, I don't have anyone to put me in, and someone always beats me into the pool. Have you ever known someone like this? You try to help them. You ask a fairly direct question. And they come back with an excuse. Well, here's why I'm still like this. Here's what's wrong. And it's just blaming. Because all they can do 
is see their own brokenness. Maybe you've been like this before, where you've had a problem that feels like a heap of trouble in front of you that you can't see around. And someone says, can I help you with this? And you say, well, look at my problem. Woe is me. Maybe you do this. This guy was face to face with the Son of God. Here's what, here's what gets me here. An official, a Gentile official in Capernaum knew who Jesus was. Walked to town 25 miles, found Jesus and pled with him. This guy's right outside the temple in Jerusalem. And he doesn't know that this is Jesus. The guy says, do you want to be healed? And he goes, oh, I can't be healed. No one will put me in the water. This is where Jesus is far better than me. Because I'd be like, lay next to it and fall in. (laughs) Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's the American way. Jesus doesn't do that. I look at this. How great is the love and grace and compassion of Jesus? He doesn't say, do you know who you're talking to? You know who I am? He doesn't say, oh, you of little faith. There's no rebuke at all in this moment. He says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And the guy does. And I don't know if it was he was completely self-absorbed, he was completely ingrateful, or he was overwhelmed at the fact that for the first time in 38 years he could do this. But he gets up his mat, he just starts walking away, and he goes into the temple. He doesn't know who Jesus just slips out. He doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't know why Jesus did it. But Jesus healed a man who was unwilling to ask for help. A man who would rather complain than pray. A man who was so self-absorbed in his own circumstances that he didn't recognize Jesus. He wasn't willing to say, who are you who healed me? He wasn't willing to say, thank you. Jesus finds him in the temple, and then Jesus warns him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen. There's a couple things here that could be going on. One, it could be that that now he was healed, and he was still begging. And Jesus said, Now that you're able-bodied, you shouldn't be begging. You should be working. Don't be lazy. Don't sin, that nothing more may happen. It could be that he was paralyzed, somehow as a consequence of sin, and Jesus said, now, now, now just quit sinning. Don't, don't go back into your old habits so that nothing worse happens to you. But there's a warning here that we need. And here's the warning I want for us. When God moves in your life, don't go back to your old ways. 
Don't go back to the, the things of the world you've depended on. If God has given you financial freedom, don't take on reckless debt. Don't give in to a gambling addiction. If, if God has, has healed you from, from something else, maybe he's, maybe he's given you a really great marriage. Well, don't squander that way. Don't squander away the marriage by seeking after other people. If God's helped you to forgive someone, well, don't insist on being angry. I mean, how many of you, let's say, let's say your hand had just been, let's say you're changing a tire, jack slips, falls on your hand, crushes your hand. And God heals it. Good as new. How many of us would be like, you know what? I'm going to get a hammer. Ah, much better. I liked it that way. None of us are going to do that. And when God moves in your life, don't mark it up as coincidence. Give praise to God for what he's done. When things work out, don't be like, oh, well, that was sure easy. No, praise your Father in heaven. Praise Him for the love He has shown you and grow. Last thing we see here is that we have, really it's a tale of three men because we have an active Savior. Verse 17, they're complaining to Jesus about the Sabbath. He goes, my Father is working until now and I am working. So I have a question for you. What do a Samaritan, what do a Samaritan woman, a Pharisee, a Gentile official, and a lame beggar all have in common? And no, this is not the start of a bad joke, although it could become one. The answer is they all need Jesus, and he loves all of them. Beginning of our time, I talked about how gospel writers will piece together stories to make a case for the character of Jesus. And here John has gone through these extremes. We have this Pharisee. This is one of the only places where Pharisees are spoken of well in all of Scripture. We have this Pharisee, this self, potentially a very self-righteous man. We have this completely unrighteous Samaritan woman who's, who's tried to fill her life with relationships with fallen people and find her meaning in that. And she's the talk of the town in all the wrong ways. And then we have this Gentile official. Well, surely God doesn't love them. Surely God doesn't love the Romans. And then you have this, this lame beggar who can't do anything for himself and doesn't seem to be willing to do something for himself even when he's healed and isn't willing to thank God. And you have these four people that you could look at on any given day and say, well, those people are beyond the reach of the gospel. That guy thinks he's too good. That woman thinks she's too bad. That guy is so far gone, he's in the, the wrong political party. And then that guy is a bum. And can't get over his own problems. Here's the great news of it all. 
It's Jesus who's working. It's Jesus who saves. And he does it not based on our resume. He does it based on his character and his nature. Jesus works based on who he is. And there's an encouragement here. There's a couple encouragements. One is, maybe you're praying for someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, and you're thinking, I don't know how in the world this person will ever get saved. The good news is it's not up to you. It's based on Jesus. And secondly, your righteousness isn't based on you. It's based on Jesus. You didn't send Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. God the Father sent him to die on the cross for your sins. While you were still sinners, God's love was demonstrated in the death of Jesus. He is not fickle. He forgives. He offers. He helps. He listens. And He works. He is an active Savior. And He loves you very much. And His working on the basis of who He is, instead of on the basis of who you are, is at the very heart of the grace of God. It's based on Him. And there's great security to be had in that. Let's pray. Father, we praise You. We praise You, God, that You love us. That You sent Jesus to die for our sins. That Your work is continuing. That You are not a lazy God, but You are an active God. Jesus is not a lazy Savior. He's an active Savior. And that you work based on who you are and not us. We thank you for this grace. We thank you for not treating us as our sin deserves, but offering yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.